0: My name is John. I have the joy and privilege of being one of the pastors here and having met you, a big welcome to you. We are in uh, the second week of of a series where we're talking about a community or we're going through a community hermeneutic, uh, asking questions about discerning about gender and leadership. And those aren't words that we, phrases that we use too often or maybe are too familiar. So I want to take a couple minutes just to define them as we get into them today. So the first is what's a community hermeneutic? Well, there's two words there. The first word is hermeneutic, and it, it just means how we read and understand and interpret and apply Scripture. So how do we do that? What's the process that we go through? How do we do that? And, and a community hermeneutic means that one of the key parts of it is that it comes through the community. The community plays an integral part. And so that means that it's not just, for example, the leaders who make the decision. We are part of the community, so we're part of the process, but it's not like we just decide how to, how to do church and then we just tell you. But we want to involve the larger community. It's also not that we just look to our theological and denominational traditions. And we say, okay, this is what this group of people has always done, therefore that's what we'll do, even though we will. We'll look back onto the history of our church next week and also uh, talk about what our, our conference says about it. That's very important. Um, but that actually the community of people are key, that we are key, to understanding and applying scripture here in this context. And the community kind of has three different parts that we want to talk about, or three different things that, that um, uh, modify that, that term. The first is, it's not just people, I would say, that have prayed to receive Jesus, or people that come on a Sunday, or people who just like the worship music. Uh, that's, all, that's all good. But the community of people that are invited to do this discerning are people who are committed to Jesus. It means we're committed to walking, following Jesus, being obedient, to our lives being transformed, being places that the Holy Spirit lives, as we talk, talked about last week. So we're people who are committed to following Jesus. We're people to, who are committed to living in community. Uh, in the Anabaptist tradition, they used a, a passage from Acts 2 that talks about having everything in common that you have skin in the game, that you're, you're giving and, and receiving ministry from this community. And then the third part is that uh, there are people, the community who are following Jesus, living in community in this place and in this time, that we're committed to being here and thinking about how God wants us to be as a church in this place, in this time. And so this is the community that's tasked with discerning God's uh, word and, and how we're to live and practice in this place. As James K. Smith, who I quoted last week, says, how, what do we do now? It's the, one of the fundamental questions of discipleship. So that's the community hermeneutic. We're going through a six-week process. It's a general disposition, I would say, that we want to move into for this church, but it's also um, the process that we're going through in six weeks. And we're asking a very specific question, which is about how are we to understand and practice gender and leadership in this community. Now, um, I'll give a, a quick little summary. I was going to wait till next week to talk about this and give it like a more fulsome uh, idea of it, but I got many emails and texts which are like, what exactly are we doing again? Uh, and that's really helpful, by the way. If you have those, you can feel free to send them on. So here, here's my, try, try to give you a really quick summary of what we're talking about. So in the Bible, there seems to be, there are passages that say that men should, qualified men should lead women, that that should be the way that the, the world works. And then there seem to be other passages that points to uh, both qualified men and women being able to take any kind of leadership. So there's two different ways, uh, two different things it seems like the Bible says or the way that it's interpreted. So the question becomes, what do we do with these passages and how do we practice in a church? And and so there's three kind of sub-questions, which is what we're discerning, I would say. The first is, how do you interpret these passages? So people who take the first part that men should be leading over women, they're called complementarian. That's the name for that group of people. The people who say men, both men and women should have equal leadership or be available to all leadership, it's called egalitarian. So that's the first decision you make. Which which do you think is correct? The second question is if you think the Bible teaches complementarian, is where, where do you apply this idea? So there's three different places that you can apply it. First is in the world, so in the entire world. The second is in the church, and the third is at home. In in our discernment process, we're just going to be talking about the church. I'm sure the conversations will spill over into other places, but we're just going to be talking about the church. And there's complementarians who think that it's all three. There's complementarians who think that it's two, and there's complementarians who think that it's one. Finally, the third question is, to what degree, then, do you interpret these passages? Uh, Or what degree do you practice complementarianism? So on one end of the spectrum... There are churches that say women can hold no positions of leadership, women can't speak in the gathering, and they need to wear some sort of uh, sign of submission. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there's people who would say, well, there's just one office that women can't hold biblically, okay? So that's, that's what we're discerning, is those three questions. Um, How do we practice gender and leadership moving forward in this community? So, we're in a process of discernment. And the first thing that we want to do is we want to actually look at our stories. So last week we had an introduction to the topic. I encourage you to go listen to that if you haven't. But this week we're going to start by talking about our stories. Now, why are we talking about our stories? Why start here? If this is a a, a biblical thing, then why do we start here? I'm going to give you two reasons really quickly. The first is that in the Bible, there's both an explicit And an implicit understanding that storytelling is actually key to receiving God's grace. As I've said before, that God's grace lives in our stories, lives in our lives. And let me just give you a couple quick examples here. Jesus, when he goes and does his ministry, seems to have an understanding and and speaks into people's stories very, very specifically. If you're familiar, at the beginning of, of John, he meets this woman at a well. We don't know her name. And he has this interaction with her. And she keeps asking these kind of generic questions and he keeps zoning in on her life. And it's it's in that going into her story that he actually reveals himself to be God. He, she's the first person that he reveals himself to be God to in the Gospel of John. And so it's it's but it's key. It comes through knowing and understanding her story. You may be familiar with the story of this rich young ruler, this guy who comes to Jesus and he says, You know, I've done everything, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, looks into his story and says, To sell everything that you have and come and follow me. Now, that's not the call to every single one of us, and that's not the call to every single person in the story, but to this person, Jesus knows his story and he puts his finger on the thing that's standing in the way of following Jesus. It's very specific to the story. There's another person, just later on, a widow, who gives just a tiny amount in the offering. Jesus doesn't say the same thing to her because he says he knows her story. She's already given all she has, she's all in. The story is so important. Nicodemus is a Jewish ruler who comes to Jesus at night. Jesus knows his story. And the the way that he interacts with Nicodemus is based on his story. It's humming through the whole interaction. And he says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus doesn't understand it. But he says, you're a teacher. How do you not understand it? And he uses that to introduce himself, both to, to Nicodemus and to us. And so Jesus is the same Jesus the call from Jesus is almost exactly the same. Come and follow me. But he, he says that into different people's stories. He's very keenly aware of what their stories are. Acts 11 is another great example in the Bible. So after one of Jesus' disciples, this guy's name is Peter, after uh, Jesus has died and resurrected and he has ascended, he's left, they're starting the church. Peter is a Jewish believer, and all of his life he's been told, don't hang out with these people who are not Jewish. They're unclean, you shouldn't hang out with them, and if you do, it'll make you unclean. But he has this vision that he thinks is from God. And this person shows up at his door. And instead of putting him through a theology test, he asks a different question. He says, tell me your story. The guy tells him his story of how God has interacted in his life and the evidence of the Holy Spirit. And Peter ends up saying, how can we not baptize this guy? How can we not include him based on his story? And in fact, Peter has to go do that twice more. He tells more people his story, and then he tells another group of people his story. And finally, the Jerusalem Council, all these Jewish Christians, they write a letter to these uh, non-Jewish Christians, and they say, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to include you in the family of God. It's a discernment process, but it starts with the stories. I'll give you just one last example. Uh, Paul, in Galatians 2, we looked at this uh, when we, we did our Galatians series. Paul is a very zealous guy. He's a very passionate guy, which... You know, excites some of us and turns some of us off. But he says he's a person, he uses the word zeal. And in his tradition, there's another person who's a person of zeal. His name is Phineas, and he was quite a violent man. And they held him up in the Jewish tradition, he's in the Bible, as a a great uh, model of what it means to be a, a, a zealous person. And so what does Paul do? Paul goes and he starts, as a zealous Jewish man, starts killing Christians. That's his model. That's his story. But then he meets Jesus. And as he meets Jesus, he changes his life. And he says, you're still a zealous person, but I want zeal to look different on the other side of it. I want zeal to look like sacrifice. Giving yourself for other people. And so Paul's life is transformed. And this is what we call a testimony, which are often so powerful. And and, um, thanks, Peggy, for giving us the, the testimony of Kai. These beautiful stories of how Jesus interacts with the life. And then Paul does that when he goes to other churches. Paul writes most of the New Testament, but it's like, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but why didn't he just send like one, you know, mass text? Just be like, hey, Jesus is Lord, get your crap together, you know, heart emoji Paul, or whatever you would send. I don't know. And you could say because they didn't have texts. I get it. But the point is just to say, it's because he's taking those locations very seriously. Same Jesus, same message, but he's taking their stories seriously. And so it's actually implicit throughout the whole Bible that the story is really important. Our stories are important. The second thing I'll just, I'll read is that our story, or our, I'll say, is that our, sharing our stories puts us in a position, actually, for the Spirit to speak more clearly through Scripture. So if we, if we take our stories seriously, it puts us in a position to, to hear God more clearly. Uh, My friend Doug, who works for the MBs and has run community hermeneutics all throughout uh, the world, is what he writes. He says, how we approach the Bible, which is hermeneutics, begins with the humble recognition that we come to Scripture from who we are. We always read the Bible from within a particular vantage point or context, either as individuals or as a community, which has always been shaped by our culture, our history, our traditions, our experiences, and current situation." Acknowledging the interpretive lens created by these factors offers an awareness that enables us to reflect critically on how our assumptions, our questions, and expectations shape our reading of the Bible. On one hand, this awareness provides the capacity to recognize our susceptibility to powerful cultural values and attitudes, which may distort or domesticate the biblical message. On the other hand, our awareness opens the possibility for the Spirit's transformation. Not only of our cultural lens, but also of our own sinful self centeredness that may subtly weaken our ability to hear God's word. We take our stories seriously, it can actually open the door for God to speak more clearly. So, what are our stories? Well, let me just start with a very simple question. And um, we're going to be taking some time to pause and just for you to reflect. You can write things down. I know I made fun of people uh, Mm -hmm. who brought uh, notebooks last week and then I asked and some of them didn't bring notebooks this week. They're like, you you made fun of me last week. Why would I bring my notebook? But There's going to be a time to take some notes if you want just to reflect or you can open up your phone and uh, write some stuff down on there if you want. But there's some paper and pens in the back. But here's where we're just going to start. What is your response to this statement? Just your gut-level response. There are some leadership roles in the church that qualified women cannot hold. What is your gut-level response to that statement? There are some leadership roles in the church that qualified women cannot hold. Now, here's some possible responses. You could say, that's a disgusting statement. Only male chauvinists would ever make that statement. Or you might say, that's what the Bible says, whether I like it or not. Or I have a sneaking suspicion that that's true, but I could never, ever believe something like that. Or that's gospel truth, no matter what the feminists say. Or I don't care. Why are we talking about this? What is your response? I'm just going to give you a minute to think through. You see, you see this up on the, on the slide. What's just your gut-level response? Write it down. Think about it. Okay, I'm going to move us on just for the sake of time. We're going to talk about two more questions following, or two more levels of questions. The first question is just why. Why do you respond that way? And I'm not here, it's not a judgment question. This is just asking about your story. It's trying to uncover how you came to that gut reaction that you had. And so I'm going to ask a few sub-questions here. That you can ask yourself. And I'll insert my story a little bit, so that just, to, just to be open and vulnerable and try to create space for us to do this. Most of the conversations we'll be having, I'm happy to chat with you, as would many people in this community, but the way that we're going to share these stories is through community group. So, if you're part of this community and you want to be part of this conversation, I really encourage you to, to be and join one of those groups or come get some time with me. The first question, what do I fear? What do I fear? Maybe for you, your reaction is based on a fear that our church is headed down... If we if we allow women into all levels of leadership, we're gone down a slippery slope. And that's a fear that you have. Or maybe you'll say, you know, all my friends go to churches with only male leadership, and, and if, if they find out I go to a church that doesn't agree with theirs, they'd shun me or make fun of me. Or maybe you'll say... I'm a woman, and if, if, or a man, actually, but if, especially as a woman, I think, and I, if my friends found out that I go to a church that doesn't allow women to do certain things, like, that's not a good look for me. What's your fear? I'll give you one of my answers. One of my greatest fears is being misunderstood. I'm a, an Enneagram 5. I just don't like... I'm very hard to understand, but also it's my greatest fear, so, you know, it's fun times for me. And um, the last 10 years I've led in this place, where we've had a complementarian stance on leadership, various various versions of that. And people in our society, and people, I would say, who are egalitarians often very much misunderstand. They'll be talking with me, and if they find this out about me and our church, the, the, the general response is something like this. Oh, I thought you were a nice person. I didn't know that you were interested in, like, subjugating women and taking us back to the 1500s. And that's just the reaction. And i just be honest. I hate it. I dread it. It, it mobilizes me into this question in a certain way. What about you? What are your fears? And I'll just say this. I can only imagine what that feels like if you're a woman and you're part of that. So, and I want to be clear. It's not that our stories reign and rule. If we're like, everybody's like, yeah, I hate that too. Then I'm like, well, let's just go egalitarian. That's not the point of the conversation. But we have to be open or our fears will run our story. You understand? Okay, second, who is the villain in your story? Who is the villain in your story? You know, if we're all narrative creatures, and I think we are, then what we're doing is we're writing a story in our minds. And we're not going to put ourselves on the plate. You know, we're not going to be the bad guy, uh, like unless we're Billie Eilish. We're not the bad guy in the story. We're going to be the good guy, and we're trying to find someone else to be the bad guy. So who's the bad guy in your story? Who's the, the person that you look at, or the group of people that you look at and you say, oh, I, I know I'm okay because I'm not them. I can point them out and say... They're, they're, they're off the rails, but I'm okay. And if you're a strong complementarian, then it's probably egalitarians. If you're a strong egalitarian, then it's complementarians, right? If you're Taylor Swift, then you're the problem, it's you, right? You're the answer hero, which is, some of you are writing down, like, Taylor Swift, question mark, should I? Yeah, you shouldn't like Taylor Swift, Okay. What experiences have I had that caused this response? Number three, maybe there's personal experiences that you've had that caused your response. Maybe you were a woman who felt the call of leadership and you were not supported. Maybe you raised your voice and it was smashed down. Maybe you were supported the whole time in your leadership journey and you've seen that modeled. Maybe you've had no leadership aspirations. All of those will play in to how you answer this question. You know, maybe you were in a church before that started uh, opening the door to women in leadership. And it seems to you like that was the first step in them taking the road, that they're not, they've lost the path and they are not even a church anymore, as far as you can tell. Maybe that was your experience. All of these things will play into our story. I'll tell you one, again, for me, I'll just be honest. Um, over the last, I think it's really five years, there's just been a landslide, a massive landslide, of male Christian leaders with platform. Who have had massive moral failures. And as a male Christian leader who's, well, the size of my platform is like this little <laughs> red area here. It's not very big. But I just, it makes me wonder. It just does. And i am got to be honest, I bring that to the table when I come to this conversation. It's one of those things in my story. Finally, what's, what's your church history that informs this response? What, were, what was taught to you through your church history, what was modeled to you? You know, some of you never had any female t- teachers or leaders. Some of you, your parents are, are pastor. Your your mom is a pastor. Th- those stories are going to change how we come to this conversation. Let me again tell you my, a part of mine. I grew up without any. Uh, I grew up going to church, and there was no female uh, preachers or elders in my parents' church, and I never thought about it like twice. Until I left, and then I went to different churches, and I would experience female teachers or preachers, and I'd feel weird. I was like, oh, that's kind of weird. And then I saw the Bible said, oh, that's also kind of weird. And so I was like, oh, it's because the Bible says it shouldn't happen. But then I experienced male, other male pastors and preachers that I also felt weird around. They were they were doing this thing called emotions on, from the stage. It just felt so weird to me. Like they was, sometimes they were crying a lot or they were super passionate, and I was like, "Oh no, it's just me that's weird. I just had a very singular experience." But maybe that's your reaction. Maybe you have had a very singular experience, and it it pushes you on either direction. When I when I was uh, you know. Entering into adulthood, into my turning 18, I started taking faith a lot more seriously, as many of us do. And and that's why this university ministry is so important. It's one of those moments where you say, am I going to keep this for myself? And I I started to, uh, at that same time, there was a massive uh, resurgence of uh, people that are called young, restless, and reformed. And it's this group of people, if you know, a a lot of it actually happened down in Seattle with Mark Driscoll's church. Um, but there was a larger group of people, and there was different things. There was a combination of things that they emphasized. Some of them were good, going back to the Bible. Um, one of the things for me at that point in my life that I really needed to hear was to take uh, lust and pornography seriously in my faith. It was really helpful for me. But there's also weird things that they kept in there, like you have to have distressed fonts and ripped jeans and uh, facial hair, which was really hard for me because I can't grow facial hair. But one of the things in the package of things that they believed was also that... Um, this complementarian complementarian is very core to the to the faith, and I heard many times. I was mentored by a guy at that time, and, and I heard many times from many different people that if that if you don't do that, if you don't if you allow women to lead, it will lead you down a, a slope to letting go of biblical authority altogether. And furthermore, if you are a man and you're not leading or stepping into leadership, you're abdicating your responsibility as a man. I heard these these messages again and again and again. And I worked in an organization, Power to Change. Corey and Peggy were my first bosses in the organization. Got to work under some wonderful female leaders. It is an egalitarian organization. And got to work with some wonderful women, work under uh, wonderful women, and even help raise women to take leadership. So that's part of my story, it all plays in. What about you? What are some of the stories and some of the um, things that influence you? So I'm just gonna give you a minute and I want you to just take some stock of those four questions. What influences you on a very personal and individual level for the response that you had? So I'll just give you one or two minutes to do that, and then we'll move on to the last section. All right, just for the sake of time, we'll move on. I hope uh, you're getting some... The juices are flowing a little bit. The third level I want to talk about is why do we respond the way that we do to this question? Like, for example, Why is it just such a big deal now? In, maybe not to you, uh, maybe it feels like something that we've dealt with in the past, but this moment, this this cultural moment that we live in, cares about this question in ways that other cultures and other moments in history doesn't. So why? And I want to um, just talk about really quickly, I know that we all come from various cultures and backgrounds, but we live all here in Vancouver. So I'm just going to talk about Vancouver culture. And I'm going to do what I call a hack job on this because this is a massive area of conversation uh, and I can't summarize it very well. So I'm going to move very quickly and I would be happy to pass on more resources. But I, I do want you to think about the larger culture that we live in. So I think in this cultural moment, I would say that we have a clash of cultures happening in our world. And so the majority culture uh, in Vancouver lives on a, has a view of history that's called a Whig view of, of history. W-H-I-G, Whig. And it's basically an idea that history is a massive story of progress. So in general, we move from this very dark time, and now we're in this present moment, which is great. They call it the glorious present, and the future could be even better. But Just think of like, like this trajectory that we're on into the future. Now, um, this means that we judge the past. When we look back at the past, we look at it like it's a dark time. Things were worse back then. They're better now, and they could get even better. And we judge the past by what's going on today, by what we know now. So we look back at moments, like, for example, the writings of Paul. And we look at him, and we think, oh, what a, what a misogynist. What a terrible guy this guy must be, because we look at him as if he existed in the 21st century in Vancouver don 't understand him in his context it 's very hard for us to take him seriously, and we also look back at history and we assume ourselves to be our best selves in, in with the knowledge that we have now in whatever moment of history we look at. so the classic example is we look back at Nazi Germany and we think if we were there, we would be the good guys. we would be helping to take care of the jewish people uh, there 's a comedian Bill Burr, and uh, he 's a little bit raunchy, but he makes a great point of this he says. Um, we all think that if we were to go back to Nazi Germany, we'd be helping, but really what we'd probably be doing is what we're doing now, which is nothing. We'd be doing nothing. And then he says, because future generations will look back at us and they'll be like, why didn't you do something about global warming? Like, it was such a big problem. And you're like, the Oilers were on a playoff run. (laughs) And I, my kitchen needed remodeling. And he's like, we'll probably, but do nothing. But we, we imagine our best selves back into history. So it's a story of progress. Now, and this shapes our view of gender relations. Most notably for this topic is feminist, the feminist movement, which I have to say was largely started by Christian women, and most historians would say actually could have only started in a context that had Christian values or Christian soil. Now, the feminist movement is super complex and murky, um, partly because it's a decentralized movement. Any kind of movement is just going to be like that. But at its best, I would say, um, from my reading anyways, I'll just talk about three things that it's about. One is that it's against the patriarchy, against this idea that men should be above women. It's reacting towards that or against that. And at its best, I think it's for equality between men and women. And right now, in our cultural moment, that means female empowerment. So those three things would be my reading of it, and your reading might be slightly different. But And I'm not trying to say that this is good or bad. I'm just trying to say it is, and that it fits into a larger story, a Whig version of history, the story of progress that we're making, okay? Now, if you, if you see this story and this vision of history as not only obvious, but also that it should be like this, and I'm not saying it should or shouldn't. I'm just saying if that's how you see it, that it's a moral thing, that this should be happening, that it means that you've been pulled into the current of this way of thinking about history. And I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just saying that is. it's good to notice about ourselves because there's a counter-movement that's happening at the same time. And this is a different view of history. It's a conservative view of history, which, which says, actually, things were better in the past. They're kind of going down, and we need to go and reclaim something from history in order to make this moment better. And the cur- the, that counter movement comes from two places very generally, okay? One would be older generations, older people. Because what happens is, you live a long time, and then you look back at your life, and you're like, oh, actually, my childhood was pretty good. Like, it wasn't a dark time. I liked that time. And my mom stayed at home, my dad worked, the church was run by men, and it was not a problem. In fact, it was pretty great. And so you you counter movement, and older generations will see that because they are not sharing that same idea or story of progress. The second group, and this is also very, this is probably more key for us, the groups that are are prone to thinking of counter or, or conservative views of history are groups that have lost power. Lost power or status. And specifically for us, I want to reference two groups today. The first is Christians. And so you can see from this graph, again, hack job here, but uh, here's how it looks. If, <laughs> it's very complex. Uh, so if you imagine the blue, purplish, I tried to use, like, no, uh, you know, obvious colors. I wasn't like, the feminist movement is the pink line. Um, so the bluish, purplish line, just indiscriminately beautiful, okay, uh, is, is going up. If you see that, like, the, the, the feminist movement is taking off, there are other groups that are going down. And Christians are one of those groups. In Canada, in the last 20 years, we've lost 20% of people who would say they're Christians. So every year in Canada, it's about 1%. So what you do is you look and and you feel this experience of of losing ground. And you look and you see who's gaining ground. And you think, oh, there's the problem, right? And so this, this is happening within Christian culture. there's a golden age back then when we were in power, and now the liberal agenda or the feminist agenda has caused us to go down and lose power. And so it's the problem, and so we go back to whatever time that we think of, and we try to recapture what was true in that period when we had power and status. And the same is true, the second group, and this is, like, there's a Venn diagram here, but it's also men, that we as women have gained power, may feel that we've lost power. And um, regardless of how good or important you think the feminist movement has been or is or necessary it is, as one feminist writer put it, you have to see that it has had some harmful effects. And one of those effects is that men, some men feel deeply shamed just about being a man. Now, whether that's just perceived shame or actual shame, doesn't really matter. But there's a, a sense of being shamed. And so there's people who feel like, oh, I'm a man, I I love the women in my life, you know, I work hard, I pay my taxes, I go to church, and I feel a deep sense of shame just for being a man. And shame is a deeply disempowering experience. It's a vulnerable experience. And so it's easier to choose a different emotion, which is empowering, like anger. And look back at history and say, oh, but there is a time when men weren't shamed. That seems like a better time to me. I would like to be, bring that time back. <clears throat> now, a lot more could be said, and I've gone over this super fast, but the point is that these stories shape us. These big stories shape us and how we see the world. So the question is, what does it mean to be a man and f- that, that may come up in this time? What does it mean to be a man and follow Jesus? What does it mean to be a woman in this culture? and still follow Jesus. We have to address and be honest about these stories if we're going to move forward. They're part of our story. They're, the bigger, le- the next level up. I'm just gonna close, I won't give us time just because of, uh, we're running short on time here. I'm just gonna close with two things. I, first is, like, take time please to reflect on these questions and share them, like I said, in community groups. And that's the first encouragement that I have for you, is just to share your story, to share your story. And that's gonna take time you have to think through some of these things that I've said. It's going to take time also to consolidate it down so that you don't bring 40 pages of notes to your community group and be like, all right, we're starting when my grandmother was four. It's like just to take time to actually consolidate it down so that everybody can share. It's going to take vulnerability, to be honest. Some of these things are pretty raw and honest, and maybe things that they're not even places you go in your mind because you don't want to go there. And it's going to take faith or courage to share them in front of other people in the community. And so the invitation is there for you to share, but I also want to say that the invitation is there for you to follow Jesus through this. Because each step of the way, and each of those things that I just mentioned, are also characteristics of Jesus. That he's gone first. That he's been the one who's given us his time. That he's the one who became vulnerable for us and taken faith. You have a question? Okay. Oh yeah, there's there's loads of gray in here. That's true. You're talking about gender norms, Yeah. okay? Either of those groups, yeah, that's that's good. And we're going to discuss those in the next few weeks. Uh, it's it's uh, I'm um, it's like taking a plaster scene, making a rainbow model of a rainbow where you take pieces of play doh, and so a normal rainbow has lots of gradient in it. Does that make sense? But when you make a model of it, you just take pieces of play doh and you're like, that's red. That's orange. R.G. Biv, right? Is that right? I, okay, red, yellow, whatever. And you just make them very clear for the sake of it. But there's lots of nuance, and it's good to bring that out in a conversation. So, yeah, that's great, and we'll get into it further. Um, but in, in the encouragement here to share your story and do it in following Jesus, is what I'm trying to say, as a response to following him and the vulnerability and faith and love that he's shown to us. And the second thing is to learn to listen to other people's stories. Especially those, as I said, who are different than you. Those who are different than you. I love what my mentor, Andy Root, says. He says, when we learn to love and live with our church family as the other, we are preparing ourselves for a true interaction with God who is the other. We are so quick to assume that God looks like us, doesn't like the same people as us, would think the same thing as us. The church family is the gymnasium where we learn to get, listen to the stories of other people who also love Jesus, and it prepares us, actually, to come into the time where we face Jesus himself, who is always going to be like us, he's going to love us, but he's also other than us, and drawing us to become more like him. And so I encourage us to take time to both share our stories and listen to other stories as centered around Jesus, and that's what we're going to do now in response Let's take time to center ourselves around Jesus and his story, both through communion, through worship, through giving, through prayer, and through song. So we invite you to do that with us. Let Let me pray as the band comes up and leads us. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you even for the space that you give for us to explore our stories, that you want to meet and minister to us in very deep and personal ways that touch who we are, and touch this moment in history that we inhabit. So I pray for myself and for all the rest of us, would you give us courage to, and time and the vulnerability to share our stories as response to you. We thank you so much that you've gone first. And we pray that we would follow you and your example. And we ask, uh, as we listen to stories too, may you, may you help us to, to listen well and listen in honoring you and in preparation to meet you, to know you better. So we give you this time as we respond now. May we center ourselves more fully on you, and may you make yourself glorious and present here. We pray these things together in Christ's name. Amen.